Jody and I have been waking up lately with some back aches, and so we thought it might be time for us to get a new bed. So we've kind of had our eye out, and we saw a commercial on TV not too long ago for the Sleep Number Bed. Y'all familiar with this? Now, uh, the Sleep Number Bed, if you don't know, you, you can change the hardness or the softness. I don't even know how it works. It's kind of magic, you know? You, you, they say you each have a number of your, like, your perfect sleep whatever your sleep number. And so you can dial that into this little remote control. And some of these beds have different zones. So like the husband can have his, you know, soft or whatever he likes and the wife can have a different one. And we we're watching a commercial and they, they showed the latest innovation in the sleep number bed. Anybody know what it is? You seen this? It's called partner snore. They can literally get a bed now where there's a button on the remote control. And if you're partner is snoring, you push the button and it will elevate their head and supposedly stop their snoring. Now I'm thinking, how many fights is this innovation going to start? Right? Can you imagine this? You're like off in La La Land and like REM sleep and all of a sudden your bed starts moving. <laughs> you know, it's just like kicking your wife and you push that partner snore, popping her up and she pops you up. I can just imagine how this is going to play out. Now, It got me thinking about how brilliant human beings are at creating and inventing and innovating things to make life just a little bit more convenient, just a little more comfortable, just a little bit more easy. And here's how this works. Someone says, you know, there's a basic human need, like say a soft, good place to sleep. And so they invent something to meet that need, say the first bed. Now, I imagine the first bed was like some, some straw on the ground. Okay, you follow me? That was like, you know, honey, you can sleep on the soft side of the straw tonight. Okay, that's how it kind of would have played out. Someone else would have come along years later and said, I think I can make this better. And they make it more comfortable, more convenient, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's how it works. That's how we got from the soft straw on the ground to like the partner snore, snore button on the sleep number bed. That's how this works. Now, I want to give you one other example of how this works. One of our basic human needs is is water, is liquid. We need to stay hydrated. If we go too long without uh, hydration, we will die. And we all know this. Now, in the ancient culture, you had to live near water, right? There were no grocery stores and, you know, gas stations where you could pick up the bottle of water. It wasn't there. So you had to live near a well. You had to live near a stream. You had to live in a cistern, dig a cistern if you didn't have any of those things. But if you went on a journey... And you're going to be across your journey. You couldn't guarantee that you were always going to come on the water spots when you needed to come to the water spots. So you had to take the water with you. So how are they going to transport this water? Because at home, they kept it in these massive, huge jars, like these earthenware jars. And how are they going to transport those, right? It's kind of hard to carry this like 80-pound jar on the back of your donkey. So someone invented the wineskin. Now, I was able to go on Amazon.com, amazing place, by the way, and purchase a wineskin. By the way, they now call them grape juice skins. That's a Baptist joke. Some of you got that. Some of you didn't. Now, here's the, here's the wine skin. You, you take off this little piece right here. You fill it with your wine, right? Or whatever you want to put in here. And now it's nice and light. You can kind of sling it over your shoulder. You can travel with it. Pretty good invention, right? This was for thousands of years. This is the way it was done. Our text this morning at Sharon Red's about wine skins. We're going to talk a lot more about that. The problem with the wine skin, twofold. Number one, they would burst a lot as part of the text. They would also leak. The second thing is, I've got to imagine like the, the inside intestines of, of, a, of a goat, which is what they usually made these out of, is there's no way that wine tasted any good. Right? So someone came along years and years later and they said, I think I can improve on the wine skin. And they invented the old canteen. 
All right, some of you have a military background or a can't, you like to camp, you know, you're familiar with the canteen. Now, this one happens to be made out of hard plastic, right? It's not going to leak. It's, 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 it's going to keep that water much more fresh. It's not going to taste like the inside bladder of a goat, right, hopefully. So this is a big improvement over the wineskin. So then came the canteen. The problem with this is your water doesn't stay cold in a canteen. Your ice won't melt. So the most recent iteration of the wineskin is the Yeti. All right, anybody have one of these? All right, the Yeti, you can put your ice water or whatever beverage you're drinking. It'll stay cold for like a whole day out in the bright sun. That's what they claim, right? It's, it, and I've tried it. It actually is it's kind of amazing. So we have the Yeti. Now, here's the point of this. Despite all of our innovations on the wineskin, our innovations of the, the bed, you know, uh, we are still tired and we are still thirsty. In fact, there are more sleep problems now, modern day today, than there's ever been in history, right? There's now doctors that specialize in sleep problems, despite our cozy, comfortable sleep number beds with Partner Store. You see, we're still tired. We still need rest. We're still thirsty. We still need drink. So when God comes to earth as a man in Jesus Christ, one of the things he says over and over and over again is, in me there is something new. In other words, what you need, human beings, is not just some newer, better version of old things you already have. What you need to meet your needs, to quench your thirst, to give you true rest, is you need something altogether different. You need something altogether new. And this is the point of the passage this morning. It's a little bit obscure with wine skin bursting and all these other things. We'll get into that. But you need to know out front, this is the big idea of the whole text. Here it is. In Jesus, there is something new. There is new wine, and the old wineskins of traditional religion can't contain it. And so the passage, the focus of the passage, is not necessarily on our physical thirst, literally, or, or, or on sleep. It's actually on a need that we have just as much, or if not greater than those two things, our need to know God and connect to God, that, that need that we call religion. Right? Because that's what religion is at the end of the day. It's a way to understand God, right? No matter no, what religion someone is following, at least in their minds, is, hey, this is the way that I'm going to understand God and I'm going to get to God or I'm going to connect to God. That's what we call religion. And this is the major issue at hand that Jesus gets challenged on because here's the funny thing about Jesus. He didn't seem very religious. Here he is a rabbi. And, and the, these, these real religious people kept coming to him and saying, you're not following the rules. Why not? And so there are two religious practices that Jesus gets challenged on in our text this morning. The first is fasting, and the second is Sabbath keeping. And they're going to challenge Jesus on these two religious practices because he doesn't seem to be living like a really good Jew. They're going to question why isn't he conforming to the religion now, what's interesting about the way Jesus responds to both of these challenges is he points to something about that religious practice that is fulfilled in himself. Both of them, he goes there. And so he makes these bold claims. And then each time he makes a bold claim about himself related to that religious practice, he then gives an object lesson or an illustration to demonstrate how that's true. And so that's the pattern, that's the rhythm of the text this morning. That's a little bit of a preview of where we're going to go. Now, once you really understand the new wine, and this is my tease to, to get you to sort of to, to key in on this, because we all need this, this passage this morning. Once you really understand how new and how different and how fresh what Jesus is actually offering is, it changes everything. So here's the thing. If you're unsure 
Some of you in the room are kind of unsure what Christianity actually is. You think you know what it is. You don't. You don't. Some of you are there. Some of you, you've been Christians a long time, but it's become stale to you or you're not finding life in it. Maybe a lot of you in the room. Uh, Some of you would say, man, this Christianity thing has failed to completely redefine my life. It's it's failed to transform me. I don't know if I'm doing it right. There's something in there for you this morning. And then there's also something in here for all of us who would say, I think I kind of got it. I'm not perfect, but I'm pretty good. There's something more. There's something better. This new wine. You can't exhaust how fresh and life-giving that it is. And that's where we're going to go in the text. So open your Bible if you haven't already. Mark chapter 2. It's a long passage. You heard Sharon read it already. I'm going to reread most of it. I'll summarize a little bit of it. But I want you to see some details of this that really has made me fall in love with this passage when I started out thinking, this is a little bit weird. Okay, if I'm honest. So let's jump into it. We'll start with 18 and 20. So John 2, 18. John's disciple, or sorry, Mark 2, 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and they came and said to him, why did John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? But your disciples do not fast. Pause there for a moment. Here's the context. In the actual Old Testament law of Moses, fasting is only required one day a year the Day of Atonement. But what had happened over time was these Pharisees had layered all these other requirements. And at this point in time, they were fasting two days a week. And so all good Jews would fast two days a week. And they're saying, Jesus, you and your disciples are not fasting. What's going on? What gives? Why aren't you part of the religious program? Look how Jesus answers them. This is, this is bold and, and, and this is actually stunning. Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, to fully understand how um, radical and provocative Jesus' answer is, you have to understand the two purposes of fasting. Two purposes that you would fast. This is true in the Old Testament. This is still true today. You fast for one of two reasons. Number one, you fast to acknowledge and grieve sin, loss, or brokenness. So you do something bad or something bad happens to you, you fast to acknowledge it, right? To sit in it, to sort of own it and grieve it, right? We see David doing this. When he sinned, we see this all throughout. That's number one. Number two is you fast to practice the discipline of emptiness. Now, what do I mean, the discipline of emptiness? Y'all know we live in a world where things are not the way they're supposed to be. Fasting trains us to depend upon God to meet our needs and stop trying to just make life a little more convenient, a little more comfortable. Stop trying to fill ourselves, whether it's the grocery store or eating out or the, the Yeti or the sleep number bed. We're always trying to fill ourselves. Fasting says, no, I'm not going to fill myself for this day or this meal or this two-day, whatever fast you're doing. I'm going to let God to remind me who really fills me. You see, the discipline of 
emptiness. Now, Jesus uses this imagery of the bridegroom and the wedding feast. This is not just a, a simple image. This image was loaded with messianic expectations from the Old Testament. See, Messiah was going to be the bridegroom that would come, and there was going to be a wedding feast when he would rescue his people. You see, Jesus goes there intentionally. He's not just using any analogy. What Jesus essentially is saying is, I'm the bridegroom, and I have arrived, so the feast can start. It'd be silly to fast when you should be feasting at the wedding. What an amazing image. Listen to what he's saying. All those images of the bridegroom and the wedding feast in the Old Testament, they're pointing to me. This is what Jesus is saying. And as long as I, the groom, are physically present, there's no need for fasting because the purposes of fasting are fulfilled. You don't fast to acknowledge sin because I've come to forgive your sin. You don't fast to practice emptiness because I've come to fill you, you see. What an amazing thing that he is saying. Fasting, Jesus is saying, is designed to point out your need. We would all agree with that. So would the religious leaders. And your need is filled in me. Therefore, fasting points to me and is therefore fulfilled when I am here. That's what Jesus is saying. No less than that. Bold, brazen statement. Now, quick side note. Is fasting still appropriate for today? Well, you tell me, is Jesus physically present with us or not? No, no, that's not designed to be a trick question. I guess you kind of, well, his spirit, you know, all these kinds of things. No, he's physically not present, right? Listen, we are living in the exact age that Jesus was talking about. He said, there'll be a time when the bridegroom's no longer with them and then they'll fast. That's us, right? So we've talked before, some of y'all were here for the Abraham series and we had the big P, which stands for the promises of God. And we had the big R, the reality of God. And there's a gap not all the promises of God have come true in 2016. Like, amen, you can say that again. Like some of you that are experiencing loss and grief like me this morning. <laughs> amen, you can say that again. So we live between the promise and the reality. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And so we practice the discipline of emptiness to point us to the one who will fill us when he returns and is physically present yet again. So yes, we fast. Now, Here's the object lesson that Jesus then presents after he says to them, I fulfilled the law of fasting. Like, I'm the bridegroom. He then gives this object lesson. And this is where we get into the, the, the obscure piece that I want to explain what's going on. 21, 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear results. No one puts, a, puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is lost in the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. Now, let's talk about these wineskins. Let me pull this out again. Here's how this would work. This is a fresh wineskin. Just got it from Amazon.com, right? If I were to pour uh, um, new wine into this fresh wine during the, the rest of its fermentation process, for example, as it fermented in this storage container, the wine would expand. Now, the good news is leather is a little bit flexible. So the leather, leather would expand and flex with the wine. However, once the wine has fermented fully and expanded and I've poured it out and I want to refill with new wine, there's no room left in this to expand anymore. Now it's dry and it's brittle and it can't expand anymore. So it's going to burst when that fermenting process happens again. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying you got to get a new with the new and an old with the old. Same with the cloth and the patches and this kind of thing. That's the big idea in this. Jesus is saying 
Your old legalistic system, Pharisees, cannot contain the newness of what I bring. There's something new, and old wineskins cannot contain it. That's the big idea of these object lessons. Now, challenge number two, Sabbath keeping. Because if fasting couldn't trip him up, surely Sabbath keeping is going to trip him up. I mean, this is one of the Ten Commandments, right? So let, let's get into Sabbath keeping, verse 23, 24. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the, the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Pause right there. Let me explain something. Um, there were at this point in time, 39 outlined types of activity you could not do on the Sabbath, like 39 different kinds of work. And if you go to Israel today, the Orthodox Jews, the way that they, they, they uh, hold, hold their Sabbath, their, their, their Shabbat is remarkable, right? All these details of things. You can't push the elevator button because that's work and you can't. It's just absolutely it's a little silly, honestly. I, the way I think about it is you're actually working more to avoid working. <laughs> so you could only walk a certain distance. You couldn't do this. Now, the Old Testament didn't specifically say you couldn't pick these little grains you know, and, and eat them. It, it didn't say that that was a violation of Sabbath. What it did say was reaping is a violation of Sabbath. So these law keepers, religious folks, are saying, look, they're reaping. Now give me a break, right? This is so silly. This is so petty. And this is what they're accusing of Jesus and his disciples of doing. Here's Jesus' response. He actually gives two answers. The first, I'll just summarize, uh, verse 25, 26. He reminds them of a time when it was approved by a priest for David and his men to eat consecrated holy bread because they were starving, right? So, so he's basically saying, hey, that was okay then. And what he, Jesus is essentially saying is, I'm doing the same thing with my disciples. Well, that's a little bit provocative. But he goes on to say something even more bold. This is his second answer here in 27, uh, verse 27, 28. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. He just threw a grenade into the conversation. Now, you remember, the Son of Man is his title that he uses most frequently for himself. So what Jesus is saying is, I am Lord over this law, this Sabbath law. Do you see that? And so this is a grenade, just like, just boom. Like, what do you mean? How could you be Lord over the Sabbath? This was given to us by Moses. It's one of our key commandments. What are you saying here, Jesus? How could he be Lord of the Sabbath? Think about it this way. The Sabbath, part of what Jesus says here, the Sabbath is a gift from God to man. So remember how the Sabbath was instituted? God creates in six days and on that seventh day he rests and he gives over that seventh day, that day of rest to mankind to say, listen, I, I want you to work, yes, but you need to rest as well. And I give you this as a gift. Don't work, not to, in order to just to please God. Don't work for you. This is a gift for you. This is a healthy rhythm where you can rest, where you can be renewed, where you can be restored. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. Jesus is saying, real rest true rest is in me. I am the fulfillment of this promised rest. Now, where do we get this from? Matthew 11. This is a familiar passage to some of you. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come to me, 
all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you Sabbath. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest, Sabbath, for your souls. So there's a Sabbath that's designed to, to, for your aching, working body to rest. And then there's this Sabbath for your souls, this rest for your souls that Jesus is offering in himself. He's saying, see, the Sabbath all along pointed to me. And we see this uh, theme picked up in the, in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews talks about this. There, there's, there's a Sabbath rest for the people of God, you see. And it is Jesus. He enables you to rest. Now, here's what made me start loving this passage. I want you to think about this for a minute. Traditional religion, like all the legalism of the Jews and all the legalism of our day, all right? Here's what traditional legalistic religion is doing. It's a system designed for work, not rest. Isn't this right? Isn't religion, when you really step back, isn't it sort of a system of do's and don'ts where if you do these things correctly, you will earn favor from God and blessing from God and this other list of things not to do, if you don't do this one, you'll earn favor. But if you do those things, you know, you're, you're on the outs. This is religion. It's a system of work, not of rest. It's a system developed to earn God's approval by doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. And the reason, Paul tells us, that God gave to Moses all these laws is to demonstrate to the people that they can't do them. That the work is not for them to do because they are incapable of doing it. And along comes the Lord of the Sabbath that says, I've done the work so that you can rest. I am your rest. I am your Sabbath. Come to me, all who are heavy and weary from working your tail off to try to earn God's approval. Come to me. My burden is light. You see, this is the Lord of the Sabbath speaking. Jesus says, I've come to fulfill all the do's of the laws, all the don'ts of the laws so that in me you can find rest because the work is completed. Now, when you start to see this here, what he said about fasting is completed in him. Now what he's saying about the Sabbath is completed in him. You start realizing Jesus didn't come just to tweak the religion of Judaism, just to innovate and, you know, take it from a canteen to a Yeti. Jesus came to bring something completely other. Jesus came to bring something new, new wine that the old wineskins can't contain. He's not talking about religion. Jesus came to replace religion with himself. Jesus said, I've not come to abolish the law, but I've come to fulfill the law, right? He's starting something entirely new and religion can no longer be used to describe what Jesus is starting. Now think about our context, right? Our day, the way we live Christianity, and I'll get into this in a little bit more because this is our application. I'm getting ahead of myself. The way that most of us live Christianity is still we live it like a religion. You know, people ask, what religion are you? Well, I'm a Christian. Well, we, we develop this little phrase, you know, we say, well, I, I, it's not a religion, it's a relationship with Jesus. I, I get that, like that's getting us sort of there, but it doesn't get us all the way there. I want to help you get all the way there as much as I can this morning. And, and so I want you to see this last object lesson. Jesus just said, hey, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. Now he's going to give an object lesson to demonstrate what it looks like for him to be Lord of the Sabbath. And this is where we get into chapter three. We'll read one and two. He entered again into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. 
They, meaning the Pharisees, religious leaders, were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. This is twisted. The day that was given for the refreshment of man is being used by these religious leaders to try to trap Jesus, right? They're setting him up. Verse three, let's see what Jesus does. He's actually gonna turn their trap on its head. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. So he's calling them forward in front of everybody. This is Jesus' object lesson. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and his hand was restored. Jesus' question is so brilliant. It's so penetrating because he could read the minds of the religious rulers. He knew they were trying to use this Sabbath healing to trap him. And so he says, what's better, to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill, which is what you Pharisees are trying to do to me. You see, he's turning it on his head. He's so smart. He's so brilliant. What he's doing is he's revealing, he's like piercing their souls and revealing how backwards the religious leader's perspective had become on the religion that they said honored God. Now, what was it that made Jesus angry? And by the way, this is the first time in Mark's gospel where this emotion specifically is attributed to Jesus' anger. What made him angry? It's right there in the text. Their hardness of heart. Jesus knew that the Sabbath was given by the Father for restoration, for, for healing and rest to those who are diminished, who those who need rest, who those need, who, who need healing. The Sabbath is about repairing the broken. That's why it's there. Healing this man's withered hand is exactly the purpose of the Sabbath. Restoration. Now, this is a stunning example on the part of these um, leaders of Judaism of missing the forest for the trees. And it grieves Jesus. And that brokenness, that stubbornness, that hardened heart makes him angry. So Jesus uses this object lesson of healing this man's withered hand as an illustration. Here's what it looks like for me to be Lord of the Sabbath. Here is the Sabbath rest embodied healing, restoration. You see, this is what it's been pointing to all along and what it will point to when the, 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 the final rest comes in the years ahead. The religious leaders couldn't understand it. Why not? Religion. Some of you, when I say that, there's a part of you that's like, I, I had a friend in a, a, a previous church that was kind of a, a new believer. He'd been a believer for three or four years and he came up to me one time. He's like, you know, why do y'all keep, from in your sermons, why do you keep dogging religion? Like, isn't Christianity a religion? <laughs> right? Well, yes and no. Yes and no. Here's how, where these religious leaders were stuck, okay? They couldn't see that their efforts, their work, all their religious efforts, even some of it which was well-intentioned. Now, we know it wasn't all well-intentioned, but some of it was well-intentioned. They couldn't see that it brought no cure for their thirst. It was just sleep number beds with partner snore brought them no rest. It, it was the Yeti that keeps their drink cold but won't cure their thirst. 
That's all this was. See, there was something new right in front of them, the new wine, the living water, the true rest, the true quenching of thirst, and they missed it. Not only did they miss it, they rejected it. It began to threaten them. See, Jesus was saying things like, I've come for the sick, not the healthy. And said, we, we can't allow that. We, we got to keep this old religious system the way it is. We've got to stay in power. We've got to stay in control because it's what we need to feel good about ourselves. We can't rock the boat. So they go beyond their anger. And in verse 6, we find out the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. So the first direct mention of a plot to take out Jesus. Notice consistently through the Gospels who feels the most threatened by Jesus. The religious establishment. All the people with the lists, the do's and the don'ts. Those are the people that feel threatened by Jesus. They realize he's not one of them. He's not playing by their rules. They feel threatened by him. Now, what's the application for us? I've hinted at it. I want to go there. What's the so what? All of you, me too, all of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian or even if you're, you don't consider yourself a Christian, you know, you're just kind of here. Like all of us tend to move toward a system that relates to God according to, I'll do these things and earn his approval and I won't do those things to get his wrath. We naturally do this, y'all. All of us do. We follow the rules. And the reason, the heart, the motivation behind following the rules for most of us is so that we either avoid wrath or, or, or we, we gain his approval. And this happens so subtly. It has, happens self-consciously. Now, I lived this way for years. As a Christian. As a Christian in seminary. As a Christian past seminary in ministry. And here's what it looked like for me. And some of y'all will identify this, right? It's like, okay, I know that I was saved by grace. I only get to heaven by grace. But I, I've, got, I've got to work really hard to be a good Christian so that God's not disappointed in me. I went through a big chunk of my Christian life thinking, I should be so much further along than I am. I should be past these speed bumps, these, these ensnarements, these things I can't get past. Here I am trained to be a pastor and I, I wasn't reading my Bible outside of class. You know, the guilt was just pouring on me with all this stuff. I had to realize that grace of God is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It goes all throughout. Now, some of you are thinking, well, well, Rob, are you trying to preach a gospel that would say you just like sit around and like sit on the couch and just, just don't work, don't do anything, don't do all the commandments? Is that what you're saying? That the commandments are no longer active? Remember Jesus, he said, I didn't come to abolish the commandments, I came to fulfill the commandments. Well, what does that mean anyway, Rob? Here's what it means, I think. It doesn't mean that we stop obeying. It means that we start obeying from a different place. It means that there's a transformation that begins to happen when grace actually penetrates down deep past the exterior crust of your heart. And it softens that hard heart that we all have. And you begin to understand, if God accepts me as I am, I can go out and keep this old life and it's not going to change my salvation. But I don't want to. Because my heart's being softened to love this one that saved me. It's just an entirely different motivation. 
So here's what's true. You can have two Christians sitting right next to each other in the pews of a church. And this happens in every church in America, our church included. And they're both doing the same things. They're both doing all the religious things, right? They're tithing. They're coming to church. They're reading their Bibles sometimes. They're praying before meals. They're doing all these things. And one of them in his heart of hearts is subtly unconsciously doing it in order for God to be pleased with him and be okay with him and not show him his wrath and not maybe like take him into cancer. Someone else is doing this because they understand the grace that they've been given and the gratitude is overflowing. And and they're beginning to love this God that loved them first. They look the same on the outside, but inside they're completely different motivations. This is what Jesus was challenging the Pharisees on, you see. Now, last Sunday, for those of you that were here, the whole point of last Sunday was about, you know who Jesus loved to hang out with? The, the people that Jesus loved, that invited into the banquet to say, here, have a, have a meal with me, were, were the ones that knew they were sinners. The ones that didn't think they were as bad sinners, they didn't come in. By the way, not because they weren't invited in, but because they didn't want to associate with those sinners. See, they didn't want to own their own sin, right? So Jesus says, look, if you just confess and admit that you're a sinner, I will forgive The ground is level here. But the only way you're going to come in and dine with me is if you own your sin, if you confess it, if you understand and you acknowledge, I'm I'm twisted inside. Now, you you, you take that from last week. After the message, I had a lady uh, come up to me last week and uh, uh, Sue Seslga. Okay, some of you may know Sue. Sue is, um, well, I don't know exactly how old Sue is, and it would be rude for me to kind of guess how old she is. She's a little bit older than me, let's just say that. And let's say uh, she's the kind of person that you just sense. This is a woman that's been walking with God for a very, very long time. And, you know, she's done the Bible study fellowship. She's done the K. Arthur precept. Like, she knows her Bible. Like, she could teach me a lot of things about the Bible. And she came up to me after the message last week, and, and she said, listen, I want you to know that it's only recently in my life that I'm really starting to understand the gospel in all its beauty. How could she say that? She was saved 50 years ago. How could she say that? Now, here's what she said. I have learned that I will never outgrow my daily need to be redeemed because I'm totally incapable of changing my own heart. No matter how many Bible studies she did, I'm not knocking those, those are great. No matter how marked up her Bible was with color and all that kind of stuff, that's great too, by the way. It can't change her heart. And then she said this, I now can truly cease from all my striving and find rest in him. His grace has delivered me from having to prove to anyone, including myself, my worth as a believer. You see, she's starting to get it. She's starting to taste the new wine. Now, here's how I want to end. All of us, I think, have to ask ourselves this question. In the way that I interact with God, Am I still trying to fit new wine into old wineskins? What do I mean by that? In other words, you have to ask yourself, do I keep falling back into relating to God on the basis of some kind of do and don't law that makes me approved or acceptable to him? Or, you know, you you struggle with this sin. It's just like if I can just go a week or two or three or 30 days or 90 days without this sin, then I'll be able to relate to God with a clear conscience. Yeah, we've been there. Or or maybe it's the other side for you. And like, man, if I can just get in the word five out of seven days a week, like like I'm taught to do, then then I'm gonna be where I need to be and I won't be perfect, but I'll be enough where I can feel good about my relationship with God, right? We all go there. That's like falling off a log for all of us. We go there. Here's what I want to say. It's not bad to obey. It's not bad to do all those things. It's good. 
but it's got to come from a different place. Otherwise, you're just trying to put new wine into old wineskins and they will burst. Um, I've, I've been reading a lot and listening a lot to a writer and pastor in New York City named Tim Keller. You know, some of you are familiar with some of these things. He, he teaches a lot about the difference between religion and the gospel, right? And he, he's really helped me think this through. And I want to read to you some excerpts from a chart that I discovered in one of his books. And, and by the way, for those of you that have been through the discipleship process that, that Eric Hoffman has initiated, you'll be familiar with some of these things. But for the rest of you, maybe the first time you've thought about the difference between religion and gospel this way. And I hope it penetrates your heart like it did mine as I read it. Here's the first one. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. Gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. Y'all see that's completely opposite? Most of us still, even though we're Christians, we prayed the prayer, walked the aisle, we know we're going to go to heaven when we die, we still relate to God according to religion. I obey, therefore I'm accepted today, tomorrow, next week. And if I'm not obeying, if I'm not reading my Bible and I'm still falling into this sin, I'm unworthy. <laughs> Woe is me. I can't talk to God. I'm so distant from him. I'm so separate from him. We're living a religious way of Christianity, which was never intended to be a religion. We're putting new wine into old wineskins. Uh, let, let me go to a couple more. I'll, I'll skip over uh, the, the next one on the slides there. I want to go to number three. When circumstances, this is what religion says, when circumstances in my life go wrong, I'm angry at God or myself since I believe that anyone who's obedient deserves a comfortable life. None of you would say that out loud, but that's how, uh, oftentimes that's where we go. Here's, here's the different approach, gospel. When circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle. But I know all my punishment fell on Jesus and that while God may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. Now, if that, if that doesn't convict you like it did me, let me go to this next one. Boy, th this one really I had to think about. Here's what religion says about criticism, okay? So we're all criticized. None of us like to be criticized. We get defensive. Someone that's operating with a religious mindset says, when I'm criticized, I am furious or devastated because it's critical that I think of myself as a good person. Listen to the difference in the gospel mindset. When I'm criticized, I struggle, but it's not essential for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance, but on God's love for me in Christ. Hey, by the way, if you want to know which system you're operating out of, just wait for either a hardship to come in your life or a criticism to come your way and then watch the way your heart responds. Y'all remember the, the parable of the, the, the lost son? Right? Remember the older brother? He misses out on the feast because he did everything right and he stands outside, you know? He's just like, what gives? I have been here. I've been working. See, he's religion. The younger son, gospel. Right? I'm not worthy. And so he receives. Completely different approach. Uh, I'm going to do one more, this next one about prayer. <laughs> uh, this one's big too. Listen to the religious perspective on prayer. My prayer life consists largely of petition. And it only heats up when I'm in a time of need. All right? You familiar with anybody? My main purpose in prayer is control of the environment. I need the sleep number bed. You see, it's uncomfortable. Let me change that dial, right? I'm going to pray. God, help. Listen to the gospel approach to prayer. My prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with God. Withness. 
And by the way, that doesn't mean you don't petition. That doesn't mean you don't ask for things when hard things come in your life. But your main purpose is to be with the God that's in control, not to control the God that you're afraid you're not with. Now, where do we go with this? A bit over time. Let me just wrap up this way. When you start to really understand the gospel, you see that true Christianity is unlike anything else. It's new wine. And if you're trying to operate within Christianity like an old wineskin of still trying to base God's approval on you on what you're doing, what you're not doing, you're going to burst. <laughs> you just will. And I've had nervous breakdowns in my office. I've had broken marriages in my office. I've been in some deep, hard places with people because at the bottom line, they're not relating to God through Jesus Christ. They're trying to relate to God separately apart from Christ. And they're saved, right? They prayed the prayer. They're going to be in heaven, but they're living out their way out of religion. They're living out their life out of religion, not out of the gospel. When Jesus becomes redefined for you, then your life will become redefined as well. That's that tagline we have on this. Following the servant king, how Jesus' life redefines our own. That starts with the good news of the kingdom. That starts with the gospel. And I'll say it this way. I think for most of us, when we start seeing this, it's almost like being awakened from a sleep. Where you'd say, you know, I thought I understood Christianity before. I thought I understood Jesus before. I'd done a lot of right things. I attended church. I prayed the right prayer. But this is new. This is different. This is fresh. This is life-giving. And some of you are at a place in your Christian walk where it's just like stale. It's going through the motions. I'm going to challenge you on this. Are you relating to God more like a religion than you are through the grace of the gospel? That's the point of this passage. Jesus came to offer something new and it cannot be contained in any system of do's and don'ts. Great novel, Moby Dick, Herman Melville has a very interesting quote. Took me some time thinking about it before I understood what he was trying to say. Let me read it to you. Here's what Melville says in Moby Dick. To ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart... The harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of rest and not from out of toil. The harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of rest. Do you want to follow Christ? Do you, do you want to taste the joy of obedience from God? Then you have to start from a place of rest, a place of Sabbath a place of knowing that deeply you are received. And then you can go about your work as a Christian in a way that will be transformative, not just for you, but for the world around you. You see, you start from a place of rest, not a place of toil. Our Father, as we think upon these things, I pray that your spirit would dig them deep into the soil of our minds, into the soil of our hearts. It's only through your spirit, Father, that you speak to us through your word. It's not through a teacher. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would just keep working the truth of the gospel down deep in us so that it may continue to grow and bring about life and freshness and newness for the glory of of your Father, our Father, and for your glory, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. See you next time.